podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Living well means aligning with the divine flow of creativity so that what you do is what you love. Valeria Tellez interviews Amy Weintraub, the author of Yoga for Depression, a compassionate guide to relieve suffering through yoga. More than 25 million Americans are treated with antidepressants each year at a cost in excess of $50 billion. But the side effects of popular prescription drugs may seem nearly as depressing as the symptoms they're meant to treat. Amy Weintraub, veteran yoga instructor, offers a better solution, one that taps the scientifically proven link between yoga and emotional well-being as well as the beauty of ancient approaches to inner peace. Addressing a range of diagnoses, including dysthymia, anxiety-based depression, and bipolar disorder, Yoga for Depression reveals why specific postures, breathing practices, and meditation techniques can ease suffering and release life's traumas and losses. She also reflects on her own experience with severe depression, from which she recovered through immersing herself in a daily yoga routine. Amy is the founder of the Life Force Yoga Healing Institute, an acclaimed yoga therapist and a pioneer in the field of yoga and mental health. Author of the best-selling Yoga for Depression and Yoga Skills for Therapists, she teaches and guides thousands of practitioners and therapists around the world. She thrives in Tucson, Arizona, where she mountain bikes, dances, writes, and creates. In 1999, Amy wrote The Natural Prozac, Yoga Journal's first article addressing yoga and mental health. Her latest offering, Yoga for Your Mood Deck, 52 Ways to Shift Depression and Anxiety, will be released by Sounds True in the spring of 2021. Meet Amy at amyweintraub.com. Here is the interview with Amy Weintraub. In your own words, who is Amy Weintraub? Amy Weintraub is a being who uh, started life with challenges. There was a rocky road to begin And she, through practice, through finding mentors, through finding gurus of love, like my next door neighbor, Louise, when I was three years old, through the healing power of 
practices that opened my heart and calmed my mind and balanced my energy and through the love in the world and manifest through particular beings, I healed and I became passionate about sharing that which healed me for so many people who have suffered in the ways that I may have suffered, you know, through early childhood trauma, through carrying depression as a sort of uh, part of my being through many years of my life. So there are many people who, like myself, carried some suffering. And so I became passionate about sharing the ways in which I healed with others. So we'll be discussing some of the topics in your book, Yoga for Depression, A Compassionate Guide to Relieve Suffering Through Yoga. So I do have those warm-up questions, as I mentioned off record. The first one for you is the idea and understanding of a of well-being, living well, and also balanced life. What would that be for you? Well, for me, particularly as an individual, um, my medicine for basic balance is my spiritual practice. And that includes actual physical postures, movement, dance, pranayama, breathing exercises, Um, mudras, hand gestures, and mantras, singing, writing, being creative, and then being a person who has loving relationships. So I think all those factors for myself are what keeps my life in balance. So exercise, relationships, you know, that sense of of being, I'm looking at a picture of my six-year-old granddaughter right now, and she absolutely um, opens my heart. What is the spirituality to you, Amy? To me, and I'm not extrapolating to everyone else in the world, (laughs) to me, spirituality is the deepest connection to all that is embracing, being able to have the, the skills developed over my whole lifetime, really, of being able to embrace all that's arising with compassion and understanding, not being rocked by the um, roller coaster of life, but being able to embrace all of it. And to do that, it requires of me a daily practice. You write, living well means aligning with the divine flow of creativity so that what you do is what you love. So I have a few questions for you, just for clarification, but we're using words. The divine, what is that to you? Well, to me, and I'm speaking for myself, I cannot say what divine is for you or any of our listeners, but for me, it's that deepest sense of connection to something bigger than me. Rumi says, when you look for God, God is in the look in your eyes. And it's 
that reaching, that searching, that is the connection. And we, you know, to keep going back to love, we Mm. find it through love. I find it through the eyes of my granddaughter. I find it through the eyes of my beloved. I find it when I'm in deep spiritual practice and I feel a sense of my own small self disappearing and I am connected to a larger self, which is love, which is also in the yogic tradition, you know, Brahman and Atman as one. There is no separation. And when we can have those moments of of deepest connection, we're in that divine creative flow. How do we recognize when we are not deeply connected with love or the divine force or God? How do we know? What are the signs? Well, it can be different for everyone. But, you know, when we're feeling constricted by stress, you know, we have this sense it could be physical pain, emotional pain that constricts us, that blocks us. And I'm not saying that we need to rid ourselves of physical pain or emotional pain in order to feel that deepest connection to the divine. But when we do a practice that connects us to a larger field of consciousness, that physical pain or emotional pain is less constricting. It's still there but it doesn't block us from the deeper connection to the divine. I can give you an example, if you'd like, from my own life. Yes, absolutely, Amy. Well, a number of years ago, I guess it was maybe eight years ago or so now, I had a hip replacement surgery. And I, you know, I'm a very physical person. So when my doctor said, um, you walk as much as possible, The day I was released from the hospital, three days after surgery, I was with my walker walking down uh, the river path here in Tucson a mile. And I obviously really inflamed the area of surgery. I was in tremendous pain for that, which seemed because people had said, once you get your hip replaced, you're going to feel so much better. And I was miserable. And so when I called the triage nurse, she said, oh, we just meant walk around the house as much as possible. So meanwhile, that pain was huge. And the only thing, I mean, I I didn't, I wasn't taking, I didn't want to take, um, you know, the prescribed opioids or, you know, I just didn't want to take that. I could only take um, Tylenol. That's all I could take. So, and it didn't do anything. So What I did was a lot of yoga nidra, which is a yogic meditation that really balances the opposites of feelings and emotions. It begins with a body scan, but it's a deep, deep relaxation that also works with the emotional body, the physical body, all of what we call in yoga, the koshas. It's not that the pain went away, but after practicing yoga nidra, that 25 minutes or 35 minutes, as long as I practiced it, I would feel not pain-free, but the pain was so minimal because I'd created so much more space around the pain. I was in that place of a larger 
larger sphere of oneness and wholeness. So, yeah. I love that idea. Yoga is medicine. So, wow, I never heard it that way. I did hear about um, expansion, feeling expanded. Yeah. And Valeria, sometimes we forget that we are deeply and intimately connected. It's very easy to forget. And what a practice, no matter what your practice is, and mine in particular is yoga and meditation, but whatever your practice is, it's there to bring you to remember mm-hmm. that wholeness, yeah. to reestablish your deepest connection. And, uh, you know, I start the day that way. By the end of the day, I can be out of sorts. And if I do just a few minutes of practice before dinner, I'm usually much better throughout the evening. I am so much more, I guess, calm and balanced than I was 10, 20, 30 years ago. But there are still times when stress hits. I have the tools to break through those constrictions and remember who I truly am, my own true nature. It's okay to get lost and we will get lost at some point. It might be part of the experience of life. And speaking of the experience of life, what do you think or feel is the purpose of the human experience? Oh, that's a big question. I would say it sounds trite, but to love and be loved. We're born whole, we're born connected, we're born umbilically. And then little by little, we separate. And some of us need to put up walls to defend ourselves because of intrusive parenting or other factors that may have produced a a sense of um, not trusting our world. So we have to put up walls. And the only way to break through those walls really is through love. It's the love that brought us forth into this universe. We forget how deeply and intimately connected we were. And it's about remembering, re-putting ourselves back together with love. And that's the point, I believe, of the human experience. So unconditional self-love, do you believe in such a practice? Uh, Is that realistic to get there one day? Well, I don't know. I think we, every single one of us, as long as we're human, has an inner critic, a little voice in our heads that says we're not good enough. However, it's a seed and we don't need to nourish it. But it's there. It's part of the human condition. It's part of why we suffer because we feel either that little seed of I don't belong here or I'm not good enough or I don't deserve love. And we all have those seeds. Some of us, though, live our lives with like a big tree inside. It's not just a little seed. And so I can tell you from my own experience that I lived with so much shame and so much, it was that visceral sense of shame, that sense of I'm not good enough, would just roll through me. And 
I have not with, I have to credit the spiritual practice, the path I've been on for more than 30 years that I can't remember the last time I felt shame. So do I ever get self-critical? Yeah, I do. Oh, Amy, you forgot, da, 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 da. Or, oh, Amy, you didn't handle that with as much grace as you could have. There's probably a better way you could have said that. So yeah, I can be self-critical and I think we all can, but we don't nourish those seeds. It doesn't mean that I'm stupid or I'm not good enough or, you know, and I don't believe that anymore. I know the seeds are there, but I don't listen to them. So sometimes it takes doing some work with the inner critic, dialoguing from a place of compassion and love with that inner critic part. And letting it know that it's, you know, it's there. It can be your editor. It can be your cheerleader. It can support you in your journey. But it doesn't need to take the lead in your life. What do you love most about being a woman? Well, I would say that our sexuality can be sacred. It can be a vessel to the divine, which actually is what, my new novel, Temple Dancer, is all about. It's being in a human body as a woman, I feel gives us tremendous grace to be able to express creatively our sacred sexuality. And it's another path to the divine. So I guess that's what I value most. Let's see, this can be genderless. There's a softness and a grace to being a woman that, depending on where you are in the spectrum between female and male, Mm -hmm. you know, you could be a long way. There's lots of variations, but generally speaking, if you're extremely masculine, you don't have as much access to feelings. It's a harder job to, to access those feelings. And whether that's societal uh, you know, ways in which we've been ingrained or whether it's uh, nature or nurture, it's uh, true that men have less access to feelings in general. That's a generality. It's not specific. Many men have are very much in touch with their feelings. It's harder for them. So I love being a woman because I'm in touch with my feelings at a deeper level, I think, more so than a lot of the men I know. And also because of the grace and the softness and, you know, it's nice to dress up and feel good about yourself sometimes. And on occasion, I do that. And I keep going back to that sacred sexuality piece. That's really important to me. So the follow-up question to that one is, what is the most challenging aspect about being a woman from your perspective? Well, I would say it's the patriarchy. It's uh, the limits that are put on us from early childhood about how to be a good girl and how, you know, when a woman, when a man is ambitious, it's an attribute. When a woman is ambitious, it's almost like calling her a name. So I would say a dear friend of mine uh, who you might want to talk to, Valerie Rain, Dr. Valerie Rain, has a new book. She's a, a psychologist. 
It's about patriarchy stress disorder and how there's a legacy. Our mothers, our grandmothers have had to limit themselves. Uh, I think in my generation, we've been able to express more. But I mean, you see it in politics. You see the name calling. You see, I cringe when I think about some of the hearings of our Supreme Court justices and that sort of thing where women's voices are not only listened to less, but are demeaned and not believed. And so women have a hard time proving things like sexual assault. The part about being a woman isn't being a woman, it's being a woman in a patriarchal society. What lessons have you learned from 2020? What is your vision for a new reality? Oh, good question. Um, I personally have learned to slow down. I've learned to spend more time in nature because I live in a beautiful place. I'm lucky enough to live where it's not too cold in the wintertime so I can get out and go on bike rides and hike. Um, So spending more time in nature, not traveling as much has given me the opportunity to hunker down and be more creative and and, uh, just spend more time with what is really important to me personally. So I think the lessons of 2020 for um, more than just those in my own household, I think are that we need to be listening and finding ways to be compassionate and bringing our compassion to the suffering of others, especially people who don't have the resources we may have, who may not be listening to this podcast, but who who may not have access to things like podcasts right now because they're out of work and they don't have enough food and they can't feed their children. So the lessons are how do we support those in need. So many people who were just struggling to keep up are now beneath the poverty level, are becoming homeless. And how can we reach out and be supportive of all beings and not just ourselves through these dark times that 2020 has represented? So going forward, there's hope that you know, we are moving out of some dark periods astrologically. We're moving out of some dark periods pandemically. There's a vaccine on the horizon. And we need to take the lessons learned in 2020 and really bring them forth to those in need in 2021. And really cultivate love through our practice through our attention to those in need. What is freedom to you, Amy? So freedom for me is the ability and the open-hearted, open-minded place that I can be in 
to receive the creative flow and to be in sync with the wisdom of the benevolent universe. The lack of freedom is the constrictions that keep us blocked from our own creative receptivity, our own creative flow. How did you become a writer? And what was the inspiration of writing your book, Yoga for Depression? Oh, that's a good question. I was a reader first. Um, I think those of us who, as a writer, uh, come from a place of having been voracious readers. I read as a little girl And it was my escape from my uh, some of the challenges in my life to be able to go to bed, sit in the corner and cuddle up with a book. And then I took writing seriously in college. I was in writing workshops with uh, people I really admired. Uh, I was an English major, but uh, also writing poetry and, and studied with George Starbuck and Sexton, two wonderful poets. And then I began writing first novels, well, short stories and fiction, but I was in a place of depression. And I was writing from a place of angst. And, you know, many writers feel that that's the place from which you write. And I had faith that Wordsworth's words, emotion, remembered in tranquility, would serve me eventually. But it wasn't until I began a daily yoga practice and I began to heal from uh, the, the depressing aspects of my life and, you know, had more energy and more vitality and more sense of a creative flow and that my writing actually took off and I was published. And uh, that first book about yoga and mental health, Yoga for Depression, actually I started writing for Yoga Journal and I wrote a book, um, an article in 1999 called Yoga the Natural Prozac, which was the first article on yoga and mental health um, that they published. It made a huge difference in a lot of people's lives. So I was asked to write the book, Yoga for Depression. And that just opened up so many doors because it enabled me to be able to share and teach what had saved my life. The chapter one, the title is Empty Pockets. So why did you choose this title? Well, it was something that my psychiatrist at the time said to me. She said, after seeing me for nine years and I was on medication, she told me I would always be one of those people with empty pockets. And I thought that was harsh, but I, you know, when you're in therapy, whether it's a good therapy or not, you mm -hmm. usually have a what's called transference. You really believe and trust and love the person you're seeing, your, your therapist. And so when she said that, I believed her that I would always be empty. 
And one day I was riding across, driving, I should say, across the Newport Bridge, um, coming home to Newport, Rhode Island, where I lived at the time. And uh, I started... I was listening to Gene Houston, the psychologist, who was leading uh, on an audio tape, a lesson on naming yourself. And I fluttered my eyes closed and the name that bubbled up was abundance. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm feeling abundance. What happened to those empty pockets? Well, what happened was I had been practicing yoga for nine months it finally dawned on me that maybe I didn't need my medication anymore. And I'm not here to say that anyone should go cold turkey off their medication. But little by little, with supervision, I was able to titrate off my medication in 1989. And I haven't been on medication since. Yoga has been my medicine. And I like to say to people, Many people have been able to do that slowly, as long as they're practicing daily, be able to come off their medication, and others have not. But if you are one of those people who needs a low dose or uh, you know something that gets you to the yoga mat, then I say bless it. It's what's getting you to the yoga mat. It's what's creating more balance in your life. So it doesn't mean everybody gets off medication, but many of us do. So a question for you about medication, antidepressants, is um, when is it needed? Um, Well, it's really up to you and your doctor. But if yoga is not, you know, giving you a sustained sense of well-being, then you may wish to consult with a prescriber be it a psychiatrist or psychiatric nurse. But it's important to really not suffer in a way that keeps you from having some enjoyment in life. And, you know, can I make a definition about yoga? Because when we say yoga, it's not just the asanas. In fact, I wrote a chapter last year in a book that is for yoga and uh, mental health treatment. It was for, it's for psychotherapists and uh, yoga professionals. And I wrote it with a German researcher who's done like 140 studies of yoga and mental health. And his primary point, uh, based on his research and a survey of the literature, is that the most the key to managing mood and elevating uh, mood is not the asana, not the postures, but the breathing practices. So not to say that the poses aren't important. The stretching does release feel-good you know, hormones, oxytocin and prolactin and all those sweet, sweet feelings that make you want to hug your yoga teacher. <laughs> but it's really the greatest effect on the mood is through the breath. So we include that. I include sound toning in my definition of yoga, uh, mantra. So it, it doesn't have to be mantras to a deity. It can be 
cooling, calming sounds like oh, or it can be energizing but grounding sounds like those sounds match up with the chakra system and actually energize our whole being through sound and breath. So sound, breath, mudras, hand gesture, that's all part of yoga. It's not just the postures, although the postures are great too. Um, so I have a question for you about the, the very beginning of chapter one. You quote Romy on emptiness. And this is a topic that's... Uh, discussed in so many ways, in, um, but specifically with um, Buddhism and mm -hmm. the Buddhist tradition. And you also mentioned something interesting. You said depression for me was an element of blank. So what is the connection between, if there is one, between emptiness and depression? Oh, that's a great question. I think this is my personal opinion. This is not... So in Buddhism... There is this seeking of the empty state. In yoga, we speak of it a little bit more as fullness, as full absorption in wholeness, oneness, radiance. So I'm not so sure there's much of a difference between the Buddhist state of emptiness and the yogic state of fullness. However, I think, now this is interesting, and this is just Amy's opinion here. <laughs> I think that women experience oneness as fullness. If you think about our sacred sexual experience, men experience that oneness as emptiness if you think about it, from their sacred sexual experience. So that's Amy's opinion about that. Now, in terms of depression, which was your actual question, when I was depressed, I felt an emptiness that was about numbness. I just didn't have feelings. It wasn't like a highly evolved state of being able to embrace it all and not being rocked by the comings and goings of life and the ups and downs, it was not feeling. And not feeling can seem like transcendence to some. It can, see, it can be a spiritual bypass. It can be, uh, but it's really a kind of dissociative state It's numbness. It's not feeling joy and it's not feeling grief. And whether it was the medication I was on or the depression itself, I was numb. That is not the kind of emptiness or fullness that the Buddhists and the yogis talk about. And it's hard to discern because, for example, my MO was numbness when I was depressed. If I am in a situation where there's a lot of emotion around me. Someone's extremely angry and I'm holding the space in a very calm, balanced way. I always have to check in with myself and say, okay, am I kind of 
retreating into a kind of numb state, my default from when I was depressed, or am I really in a place of balance here? And I think it's a self-inquiry that someone who has suffered from depression needs to be aware of even as they're 30 years on their spiritual path. So talk to me about life force yoga. And life force yoga, it is a method? Um, Well, it's a synthesis of yoga practices that we have found actually support mental health. So, uh, for example, Swami Shivananda, uh, you know, in the uh, Shivananda tradition, uh, who's been long gone, I think he passed in the early 70s, maybe, maybe earlier than that, maybe the 50s. Anyway, Swami Shivananda said, adapt, adjust, accommodate. And life force yoga takes yogic practices that are ancient from ancient sources and makes them accessible and adapts them to medical and clinical and all kinds of settings, religious settings, so that they are um, easily accepted by people who may not have signed up for yoga. They are coming for psychotherapy or they're in an addictions program or they're in a a recovery program or they're at a a women's shelter for domestic violence. So they didn't sign up for yoga, but these practices can be so supportive of their well-being. So we change them with things like instead of Analoma Veloma and Analoma Chroma, we call it stair-step breath. And we don't even talk about the breath. We might say, take little steps through the nostrils as though you're climbing a mountain. (laughs) And then slide down the mountain through the nostrils. So it's a way of circumventing people's resistance because many people who may be upper chest breathers have perhaps been in a gym yoga class and they've started with watching the breath and it's like, oh, this is boring, I can't do it, Um, my mind is racing, or the teacher says breathe down to the bottom of the lungs and they're not able to do that, so they feel not good enough. So this is a way in which we jump over some of that framework, those hurdles that people may have about the difficulty or they're not liking yoga because they've had an experience that they felt like they didn't quite get it. Or there may be a a religious resistance to anything that has speaks of Sanskrit or, you know, is from India. So there may be all kinds of cultural resistances to yoga practice. So life force yoga adapts it so that it's accessible to all populations without offending anyone. Mm. So um, we're almost at the end. I have a few more questions for you, the ending ones. Would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? I mean, I could read a passage from my novel, but... Absolutely. Yes. Yes, Annie. I'm going to start with the prologue. It is in the voice of an Indian woman. She's about 18, but we don't actually know that yet. So this is the prologue. I am running 
It is dark in this place, and I do not know my way. I climb up through the brush. Suddenly, the prickly scrub where the path ends catches my shoddy, a cow path only. I push and pull, and it will not let go. Where am I? Is this a dream? I struggle to free the charred remains, the hem once gold, now blackened and crumbling. My sorry is caught like the breath in my throat. I rip and tear. The shredding sound tells me I am free. A tangle of fabric stays in the bush. I am running through the cool night. The heat is in me still. Varanima, can you forgive me? I run from you and all we have known. On this mountainside, little fires below and above spit into the night. Is that my cart flaming below? I reach for her bangles and they are gone. Around my neck, the pouch, the key, the gold, all are gone. Only the gold of the flames. I burn, I run. Lord Shiva, let me awaken from this dream. There is a flash of silver like starlight on water. Trees throw their branches, screaming. And in my heart is the cry of Varanima up the stairs, singing her love chant. I am running toward the river. There is no more breath. May I wake up in my Amma's arms. And then maybe just a little bit from chapter one, 1997. At 7 a.m. on the first day of the year, Wendy Rabin boarded a train in Coimbatore, India, traveling east from the lush Nilgiri foothills to Chennai along an ever more arid route toward the Bay of Bengal. She hadn't purchased her ticket in advance, so after a harrowing bus ride 7,000 feet down the ribbon of single-lane highway from Uti, she arrived at the station to find that only fourth-class seats remain. It would be a long journey. The lady's car was full, and she was directed to a car crowded with men pressed together on worn wooden seats. For the first time in her life, she felt gawky and tall as she walked to the only seat left beside a woman, a wedge of bench by a window. The familiar view, she reminded herself, would be no different from this fourth-class window than the one from the luxury coach she had booked last time. She murmured a low apology to the elderly woman in the seat beside her. She appeared to be sleeping, meditating, and took her place stowing her backpack beneath the seat and placing her water bottle and notebook in the small space between them. The old woman's dark face was etched around the eyes and the corners of her mouth. There were swaths of white and pink in the peak of her complexion, but the skin on her cheeks and forehead was taut and youthful. Even in this heat beneath her saffron sari, the woman wore sleeves the color of her skin, a kind of undergarment that covered her neck, and her hands were covered in flesh-colored gloves. 
It was clear that she had been a beauty. There was a noble radiance in her face. The rest of her small frame seemed as insubstantial as cobwebs. Yet Wendy had distinctly felt the woman's bony knee as she climbed over the curve of her to claim the seat. The woman's only jewelry was a small gold stud in her left nostril. She smeared across her brow was vibhuti, ash, from a recent purification ritual. I'll stop there. But you can see that it, we, it will weave. Uh, the, the elderly woman turns out to have been a Devadasi, a temple dancer, before the ban on 1,200 years of sacred temple dance and women's sacred sexuality in 1947. And she gives, she leaves, she disappears actually, and leaves a small red volume and asks Wendy, the contemporary character, to have it translated, to reveal it to the world, the story of the temple dancers. So the two women's stories weave together throughout this novel of love, uh, romantic, sexual, divine, love because both of them find their way to the creativity of sacred states through the trance of the dance, through art. Wendy is an artist. So that's what that book is about. And it's about the healing of love. Mm, Yeah. We talked about for a while about this um, with email communications. Yeah, that would be an interesting topic to talk about it. Absolutely. I'll talk to you after the interview. So I have a few more questions for you. I mean, the final one, two of them. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything in a different way? Well, that brings tears to my eyes because it's been so long since I've been, since I've seen my granddaughter in Montreal, my three granddaughters. So the only thing I would do differently would be to fight like hell to get to Montreal, uh, to hold them in my arms, yeah, before I died. That would be the only thing, to have that physical connection with my beloved family um, that I have not held for way too long. But other than that, yeah, no, I wouldn't do anything any differently. My last question is, what is another word for healing? Well, I mean, the answer that pops right into my mind is love, because that's the pathway to healing. It's the love in the room. When you're in therapy, it's what heals us, the love in the room. It's not the modality of psychotherapy. It's not the techniques that we use on the yoga mat. It's opening to receive love and trusting that there's enough love. I mean, folks who've had trauma don't have that sense of trust. So building that sense of trust that there is enough love to heal. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Um, amyweintraub.com is the website. I have a YouTube channel. It's Amy Weintraub author. 
And on that channel are many free practices that offer balance and healing. Uh, I have a new series that's free called Remote Relief. Uh, and uh, I guess the website will connect you to the, everything else, amyweintraub.com. Wonderful. I'll have the link on your podcast profile. Thank you so much again for your beautiful, profound wisdom sharing that in this podcast. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for your purpose. Thank you for everything. Well, thank, <laughs> thank you, you for doing these podcasts, Valeria. It's like so vital that these messages are heard and felt on a deep level. So I think you're doing beautiful work in the world. Thank you, Amy. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Amy Weintraub and her work, please visit amyweintraub.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.